Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Walden. My guest today is Michael Schmelzer of the Monte Bernardi Winery in Panzano in the heart of Tuscany's Chianti Classico region. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Monty. So, Michael, let's start by talking a little bit about your family. You um, you have a German-American background and your family bought the estate in 2003, is that right? That's correct. My father's German, my mother's American. Basically, uh, we ended up at the property with an idea of bringing all the family together with this idea of running a family winery. I was already in Australia on a path to making wine, and my sister was in another part of the world in Germany. My parents were thinking about their retirement a little bit further ahead, and it was actually my sister who uh, came up with the idea. I said, well, what if you retire on some vineyards? Maybe Michael and I could make a business out of it. So we kind of started with that idea and looked for the perfect place. And my parents would enjoy their retirement with their kids around, and my sister and I could actually get a wine business together. So. so your sister's Jennifer, who actually discovered uh, that Monte Bernardi was up for sale? Actually, it was um, Sean O'Callaghan. When we uh, were first looking in this area, I knew Sean a few years before we started looking for a property. Who uh, is Sean, would, briefly? Sean is uh, a, a friend who had been making the wine at a winery in Gaeli called Riachne for many, many years. He actually inspired me to go into winemaking because he was the first foreigner in Italy that I met that was making wine and it kind of made me think that it was actually something you didn't have to be born in. So it was kind of actually a critical piece to me that I needed when I was already saying, yeah, I don't want to go the food route, which was my first passion. So you I, studied I, culinary art, didn't you? That's right. I did the whole cuisine pastry degree at Le Cordon Bleu. In the Get, States? No, in Paris and in, in, in London. In the Paris part, we would uh, visit winemakers, talk about winemaking philosophies, and it really started my wine bug. And then and I met Sean and that was the last piece that I needed. I was like... I know exactly what I want to do. So, But you grew up in rural America, is that right? I grew up in actually not rural, but suburban America in my younger years. Then Whereabouts? Uh, Michigan, suburbs of Michigan. And then we moved to Germany because of my father's career. And I finished high school in Germany. I was actually born in Italy by chance, uh, which probably made me always very aware of things Italian and kind of an uh, abnormal pride for things Italian. How come you were born here by chance? Did your mum not realise that she was, you just popped out or or how did that work? (laughs) No, uh, my father's career uh, had us move quite a bit when we were younger and then towards the end of our, our, at least my life uh, with my family uh, when living with my parents. So we moved to Germany in my early teens. I finished high school in in, uh, international school in Germany and that really accelerated my passion for food. I started working kitchens and I worked in German restaurants and then primarily Italian restaurants. And I said, I want to make a go of this. So I, I started uh, learning about uh, culinary arts and decided on going to Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. And uh, and uh, by the time I finished the degree, which was in the summer hiatus of my undergrad degree at CU Boulder, I think I already knew I didn't want to 
pursue the culinary arts for my profession. So it was very good timing that I, I got introduced to this world of wine that I now find myself in. So when you or your family acquired Monte Bernardi, it already had like 900 years plus of, of history. Was that a big, even bigger responsibility or was it an advantage? That's a great question. I think I should say that I, I studied winemaking viticulture in Australia and it was such a phenomenal experience for me because there you don't really have a lot of history of winemaking practices. You can find every grape variety grown there, extremely perfect climate to grow a lot of these grapes. But uh, you don't have a lot of the culture and history behind those winemaking practices and styles. So they might all be made in a kind of a similarly modern way. When I arrived, I just absolutely loved all the wines there and the varieties. And they were so generous and so obvious. But by the time I got towards the end, four years, I think I kind of knew that I had, you know, my palate was changing and I was becoming more aware of European styles and subtle kind of characteristics in wine. So it was great in the sense that when I came to Monte Bernardi, I had a pretty clear idea that I wanted to make something that could only be made not only in Chianti Classico, but at Monte Bernardi in Panzano and Chianti. So every decision really that I've made since the beginning has been to try to keep it as simple, as straightforward as possible in the winery and just kind of emphasize the place and the climate and the qualities that are inherent to this very small part of Chianti Classico. Some of your early vintages, like 2005, for example, were incredibly tough, and you'd already kind of chosen the organic stroke biodynamic route. How did you deal with that? That's right. I'd look at that as being extremely fortunate because I uh, was tested early, let's say, because I I had a lot of theory. I, I was into biodynamics in Australia, but I didn't have a lot of practice under my belt, so especially in the vineyard. So Having a challenging year like 2005 basically taught me that in a wet, difficult vintage, because it was quite wet towards the end of the year uh, near harvest, giving your vines kind of the best support from the ground up makes them stronger and more resistant to pests and diseases. And neighbors who maybe were more taking a more conventional approach actually had mold problems sooner than we did and lost more fruit and had, I think, uh, weaker results, the final quality. But did they just see that as you beginner's luck? Oh, this new guy, he's, you know, he just had a big a bit lucky um, this year. Well, no Italian will ever admit that you made something better than they did. So I certainly don't think anyone was patting me on the shoulder and saying, oh, you made an amazing 2005. But the great years often give me less satisfaction. You know, they feel like... The easy years. Yeah, the easy years in a sense. One, they're a little bit overly generous. And then there's a lot of great wines in that vintage. The truly satisfying years are those kind of more challenging vintages like 2014, like 2005. When I look back in last few years actually 2014 it gives me more satisfaction than many of the other like 2013 is the better vintage no doubt but 2014 gives me more satisfaction because we we worked so well in the vineyard we had very healthy grapes farming organically never compromising uh, goals that we set out from day one and we resulted with some of my favorite wines that I've ever made so so I think um, I've learned from experience that we're overly you learn in school to be overly conservative and overly protective overly protective and you don't know what's possible until you kind of push the limits that being said I'm not someone who's going to risk my family's future spraying something like milkway that 
that could end up having me lose, you know, half my crop because I want to be a pioneer and and using less uh, or no copper, let's say. I'm definitely conservative in my approach, but I can probably say that we've never used anything that we uh, said that we wouldn't do from day one. And I feel more confident now than ever that we over rely on those things and and that um, we can pull back from those places and even in less areas we can lower our spray dosages lengthen the time between sprays and uh, still come out with very high quality healthy grapes at the end of the year okay let's talk a little bit about Chianti Classico and the region as a whole and the kind of the politics of it most people involved in wine certainly in Italian wine and people who love Sangiovese sees Chianti Classico as one of the great wines on the planet not just in Italy but if I walk into any decent fine wine shop I'll find probably a dozen Brunellos a dozen Red Bordeaux a dozen Red Burgundies and I'll find at most one or two Chianti Classico why is that's an extremely frustrating thing as a Chianti Classico producer that to me is a direct result of the way we market and sell the wines of Chianti Classico more of a brand and less about the territory of Chianti Classico. Chianti Classico is an enormous region. It's 8,000 hectares or 20,000 acres of vineyards planted. To call them all just Chianti Classico and not focus on the sub-regional distinctions of that enormous area, it it handicaps our, our ability to sell the wine because a retailer is not going to have... 10 Chianti Classicos if they're, they're in the eyes of the consumer are all replaceable by another one uh, from the same region. Uh, that's why we need to talk about having a Chianti Classico from Rada, a Chianti Classico from Panzano, a Chianti Classico from Castellina. It opens the whole market up for everyone, you know, retailers and us as producers. So it's a bit like the Burgundian model. It is. Each it village is. gets and, its own kind of... And it allows us to dig deeper into the region and find more things to become passionate passionate about to sell those wines so we can talk about the rocky soils of the center part and the steep slopes or the sandy lower softer rolling hills of the north that you know are extremely bright and extremely delicious you know there's I love all the regions of Chianti Classico and I think they each have their individual characteristics that make them special but um, we are as producers we are incentivized to put that at the back and focus on our brand like a big chateau might do. And that hurts the overall ability of of uh, the greater amount of producers in Chianti Classico to sell their wine. But are you a good salesman, though? Because that, you know... You, <laughs> I don't you... think of myself as... I've been told I am... Be, I think it's just because I came here for a passion to make Chianti Classico and Sangiovese. And I do think it's the greatest region of Sangiovese in Italy. That's my personal opinion. I love perfumed, more aromatic, more elegant versions of Sangiovese. So compared to Montalcino, which is a hotter, more southerly exactly. region and it's much cooler here and more enclosed by woodland and, and mountain exactly and uh, so you're too polite to say <laughs> but a lot of people agree with you you know Chianti Classico is almost a lot easier to drink than many Brunellos yeah it's much more versatile but it still has great ageability it doesn't have that monstrous 
uh, structure that um, some younger Brunellos can have. I mean, just to prove the point is I much rather drink a Rosso from Montalcino than a Brunello nine times out of ten. So, so Rosso di Montalcino is a wine that um, may not even see any wood is released within a year of the harvest. Yeah, exactly. And it's quite sort of fresh and fruity. It's more like a Chianti, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's more like a Chianti from the better producers who treat it with softer hands, let's say, and let the variety speak for itself, I think. So as well as talking about the sort of regional um, or the villages within the Chianti Classico area, what are the main soil types you have at Montepinati? Because I think you've got three of the main ones, right? Yeah, we're pretty lucky. Um, We have two of the classic ones. The Galestro is our predominant soil Panzano. What is Galestro? It's a shale. It's a petrified clay, and it's purple and brown. Other parts of Chianti Classico can be more white and light brown, but for our it's purple brown. That's probably at least 80% of Panzano is on on the Galestro. Then you have limestone Albarese, which is the second most predominant soil in Panzano, but we only have about 10% of that. And then we have a rare sandstone called Pietroforte with a veining of quartz that is a very old hard stone that uh, we are the only producer, I think, in Panzano that uh, has Sangiovese on that soil type. So what, what is, how does Sangiovese's taste or aroma or even color change on the Galestro compared to the Arenaria and compared to the Alberese? Inherently, the Pietroforte, the sandstone and the limestone are lighter, more reflective. So you're going to get more tannin production and skin, so more structured Sangiovese. You can also get a darker berry fruit spectrum because you're getting that added sunshine. Whereas the Galestro, it's dark, it absorbs heat, radiates heat at night. You don't really get any extra reflection. So to me, you get a kind of a softer, juicier, Riper. maybe perfumed uh, uh, Sangiovese uh, from that one. So I love both versions, but um, our Retro Marcia Chianti Classico, which is 70% of our production, has all three blended in. So I think it gets the best of all three soil types. But our age-worthy Sayeta on the sandstone, pure sandstone, is my favorite. It's a truly unique uh, expression of Sangiovese that that uh, that we're very fortunate to have. So you're a very forward-looking guy, but you, you made a wine called Retro Marcia. What does that mean in Italian? Yeah, Retro Marcia was the first wine that we got to actually create the name for, and it means to reverse, to go backwards. I wanted to say that we were going back to kind of simple, straightforward Chianti Classico that tasted like Chianti Classico because I felt like a lot of the Chianti Classico made when we arrived were a little bit too international, a little bit less speaking of the place that they came from. A bit more Bordeaux Bordeaux or Rhone-like. Yeah, Bordeaux or Rhone-like, but also just modern, you know, and yeah, oaky, overly extracted. Some of my favorite characteristics about Sangiovese is the generosity and the, the approachability of it if it's treated in a more traditional style and larger boti or, you know, format longer aging cement tanks that give you great generosity uh, upon release but that still ages very well it doesn't really sacrifice the aging so, so when you talk about the larger body what you're meaning is uh, aging rather than aging it like a bordeaux in small barrels which make, makes the chianti classico taste very oaky you're talking about aging in much larger yeah. wooden casks exactly just to so give a bit of a softness we have um, you know we have barrels of 2,300 liters to 3,000 liters and I actually just bought a 6,400 
400 liter barrel that is arriving this year. Uh, the, the main idea is that with larger barrels, you get less oxygen. So the evolution is slower, but to me, you allow the structure to become elegant and, and then the flavors and aromas come out slowly more in sync with the structure. Without, I, without ever giving a woody taste to exactly, the wine. Without giving the woody, but also for me, even if you have used barrique, you get too much oxygen. I actually don't think amphora is really the right thing for Sangiovese for, for this area either because you bring out the fruit flavors too quickly and the structure is too crude and raw. Uh, Sangiovese in this area is quite tannic and aggressive in its youth. I think if you tasted my Sangiovese out of tank in under 12 months, you would think they were undrinkable. That they change in the next six months is, is tremendous and it gives such a savory, well-knit, beautifully elegant Sangiovese that is so much more versatile and ages better because it's had less exposure to oxygen. So I think we get the best of both worlds. And I think about this more than anything. What should we be giving our consumers? A wine that can age for 50 years or 20 years or whatever you want to say? Or should we be trying to give them the most years of enjoyment? I think that we should be giving them the most years of enjoyment, which means you should enjoy it when it's released and for many years onwards. You shouldn't have to say, oh, this is great, but it needs three years. I mean, that's 5% of the your consumers are going to keep it long enough to enjoy it at that point. You know, obviously you're not um, Italian and you're doing something a little bit different. Do you feel that your peers are interested in what you do? They, they think that you're doing a good job or, or is there not much communication? You know, your idea is obviously you talk about marketing, the fact that you actually study this kind of thing and you're talking about making wines that are incredibly versatile that almost you could sell it every single day rather than say, right, you've got to put this one away for 10 years because as you said, yeah. nobody wants to do that is that are people kind of copying you or, or are they still stuck yeah, in their ways do you think i definitely have seen a return to the larger barrels which i love um, i feel like i enjoy a lot more wines of my peers than i did 10 years ago so i love that i don't think of it as competition i think there's so little Chianti classico really in the grand scheme of things that there's a market for all of us but i do i don't like wines that don't express the place because I've made wines in places like that and I think that we're in a place that's too expensive to make wines like that. We need to make wines that express where they come from and every introduction of new technology, new techniques often strip away a layer of that. Whether my peers agree with me, I don't really think about it too much. I want them to make the wines that they want to drink and they want to sell. I think that's the key to be a good salesperson and is make the wine you want to drink and and everything should fall in behind that okay i mean just final question about um you know we talked about bordeaux being incredibly famous do you think the bordeauxification of chianti classico historically will be seen as an incredibly big mistake or just simply one step in chianti classico's progression to a brighter future oh, that's a great question in in a lot of senses i think it was a necessary step for quality to go to kind of clean up things in Italian winemaking, but um, it, it came at the sacrifice of identity. So I don't see it as a necessary step, probably a necessary step in a lot of ways, but I hope that, and there are positive signs that we are moving in the right direction as a region of Chianti Classico, but in Italy as whole, I just hope that indigenous varieties are not lost and that in other parts of Italy, there are more people who make the retromarcha uh, of their 
region and turn back to simplicity and enjoyment of that grape variety. Cool. Michael Schmelzer of the Monte Bernardi Winery, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today on the Italian Wine Podcast and hear some of your very passionate but quietly expressed views on Sangiovese and on the region as a whole. Um, I think for me you're a real beacon in Italian wine because your range from the less expensive wine to the top are all incredibly drinkable and the soil differences really come through. And if I was a student of wine, this would be my first stop for Sangiovese. Thank you very much, Monty. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to see you. Thanks, Michael. There you go. Nice one. Thank you. Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram 